Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Stephen C. Brisson to discuss his book, Architectural Missionary, The Fred Charlton in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, 1887 through 1918. Thanks for tuning in. The first and most prolific professional architect to live in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, D. Fred Charlton used Lake Superior sandstone to craft distinctive buildings throughout the UP. Born in England and trained as a civil engineer, Charlton arrived in Detroit in the late 1870s. There, he sought work as a draftsman. Like many of his peers, Charlton had no formal training as an architect, and he learned his trade at several prominent firms. In 1887, Scott and Company sent him to Marquette to open a branch office. Three years later, Charlton opened his own firm, and over the next 28 years, he designed more than 400 buildings, including residences, commercial structures, schools, courthouses, and churches throughout the region. These buildings offer valuable insights both into the tastes of Americans before World War I and into the evolution of the architectural profession. Deftly adapting national trends, Charlton provided Upper Peninsula communities with modern structures worthy of any place in the nation. Many of his buildings remain to this day, monuments to the skill of this English-born architect who made a place for himself upon the shores of Lake Superior. Architectural Missionary is a fascinating and informative history of Charlton's work and of architecture in the Upper Midwest. And I'm really excited to be joined today by the book's author, Stephen C. Brisson, to discuss the life and work of D. Fred Charlton. Brisson is the director of Mackinac State Historic Parks, vice chair of the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History, and a former board member of the Michigan Humanities Council. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really interested to talk about this subject because it's one of those great topics um, that a university press is able to cover that sort of more broader mainstream publishers might not, that sort of intense local history that we know exists, but maybe we don't give a lot of credence to. Could you tell me a little bit about how you came to thinking about architecture in the Upper Peninsula specifically? Well, um, I became uh, interested in it because I'm uh, originally from the Upper Peninsula. I grew up there. Several generations of my family lived there. So I was in that environment. I attended Northern Michigan University for my undergraduate degree and uh, majored in history. And as part of some of my classes there, uh, I was encouraged by uh, several of my professors to take an interest in the local environment and the history of uh, Michigan and, and the UP. And uh, just naturally, I always had an interest in architecture and began to focus on some of the late Victorian, early 20th century structures that existed and happened upon Charlton, who was not an unknown entity. He had never been forgotten because, again, he was so, so prolific. And so that uh, I wrote a paper in one class and then eventually I got my master's degree from the Cooperstown graduate program in New York in museum studies. And my master's thesis was on Charlton. And what was it about Charlton that drew your attention specifically? Was it the amount of building that he did in the UP or something about him as a character? 
No, I think it was the amount of building and, and, and because he was one of the first, really the first to take up a long time residency in the Upper Peninsula. And it was so prolific that you just couldn't go anywhere where you wouldn't encounter, you know, one or more of his buildings across the UP. And it's because of that, I think, that just again and again, you look at, well, this courthouse here and that courthouse and the buildings of Michigan Tech and, and Northern and just it, it just never ended. No architect ever designed as many buildings as he did in this region of the state. And so I, I think it was, I guess it's his celebrity status in a way in, in his local environment that originally attracted me to him. And then uh, again, he was this uh, known entity, never forgotten about, but a lot of intense research hadn't been done on him and there were no complete lists of his buildings. His office didn't survive his retirement in 1918. His one partner opened a, a, a new firm in Milwaukee, but it basically ended. So the, the records, the plans, uh, everything just sort of disappeared. You know, unlike some architectural firms, they go on long enough following the death of, of one member, it, it just goes on. And so those records have a greater chance of surviving, but that was not the case with Charlton. So it was a lot of intense research to, uh, again, just to come up with a, a list. And there are still a third of his buildings that are, are unknown. I was able to find two thirds of what he's done based on this uh, 426 number that was noted at the time of his retirement in 1918. And the book does such a great job of cataloging as much of that as you were able to find and reproducing it for folks and providing you know, some illustrations of what those things look like. I really mm -hmm. want to talk about you know, Charlton's style and, and his impact on the UP, but I feel like we should back up just a tiny bit and talk about his origins because it is kind of maybe not unusual, but it's interesting that his trajectory starts in England and that he then finds his way to Detroit and to the UP. Could you tell us a little bit about sort of his birth and upbringing and, and how he ended up in Northern Michigan? Sure. He uh, was born in a, a small village to the south of, I guess, the southeast of London called Rotham. It's in Kent. And then he was raised there and in nearby Ingham. And he would then spend his teenage years in Richmond, a suburb of London, where his widowed mother moved. Again, most of his youth was spent in that, that small village, the two villages there. His um, father was a, a tenant farmer on a vast estate, and his mother was the, the daughter of the Lord of the Manor. So he sort of had a very you know, Downton Abbey sort of origin. His, his mother fell in love with this uh, Tenant farmer Thomas Charlton enraging her father. You know, he he forbid the union, but they married in the village church against his wishes. He disowned them for a while, but the break in the family was eventually mended. And Demetrius Frederick Charlton is actually named after his maternal grandfather. Demetrius is a, an old family name that dates back to the the Dutch ancestors of the of the Charlton uh, family. Um, so just, just in his name, it shows that, again, that that rift was repaired. He studied civil engineering then in London in his late teenage, early 20s, and uh, very typical of the period. He enrolled in King's College London and, and received a degree, or it, he was a student of, I don't know if he ever did receive a degree in the applied sciences there. But then almost immediately, he started apprenticing as an engineer, first with a railroad company, and then with, with a very prominent uh, engineer in England named Hawkshaw. And uh, he completed his internship with them. 
And uh, right after that, he embarked for, for, for America to, to Canada initially, of course, because being a British citizen, he could just simply move to Canada. But immediately he, he moved into to Detroit. At the time, Detroit was the second largest American city on the Canadian border after Buffalo. And even though Detroit was, I, I believe it was about the 18th largest city in America, it was still bigger than Toronto, uh, Canada's largest. So Charlton comes with this, again, background in civil engineering, coming to Canada. Cities there are fairly small, but here right on the border is Detroit, growing quickly, in need of architects and engineers. And so he moves there and finds employment almost immediately with uh, several uh, architectural firms in Detroit, uh, a number of which were also uh, Englishmen. I know of no direct connections between him and those architects, but the fact that they all hailed from England, I think, assisted him in, in getting positions in those firms. And there he would work for a number of years as a, a draftsman, an assistant, sometimes it's referred to as an apprenticeship, but, but really he was, uh, you know, he had the credentials as a civil engineer already. So it was more an assistance role in, in those firms. Could we talk a little bit about what do those credentials as a civil engineer look like at the, at the sort of end of the 19th century? I mentioned in the introduction that there, you know, there was no formal training in architecture that he embarked upon. And so he learned most of that on the job. What kind of training did he have before he um, started those apprenticeships? It was, it was really, that was the training. And that would have been true of architecture at the same, at that time as well. You worked in a firm. The first uh, universities in America to begin granting degrees, it was really around this time, but they were still brand new. And so Charlton was really following that traditional practice. Again, even if he would have chosen to become an architect immediately, he would have done the same thing he did as a civil engineer. Again, he attended King's College, received or, or worked towards a degree in applied science, but he was immediately doing apprenticeships. And that's, that, those were your credentials. That was your diploma. And once you were done with that, you were a civil engineer. He did uh, gain membership in the British Society of Civil Engineers just before he left. And this was one of the, uh, a professional group that was promoting the professionalization of, of civil engineering in England at that time. So he's really in this period when, when many professions were going through this. They were still in traditional apprenticeship mode. Think of even you know, law, law firms where a young lawyer would read law with another lawyer who was already in the business, basically as an apprentice. And then eventually you make the bar. And that's what Charlton did with civil engineering. He studied civil engineering with another engineer. And then that's what he was. Almost immediately upon becoming to Detroit, he sort of made the jump from civil engineering right into architecture. And that was not unusual. There are a number of other prominent American architects of, of that era who did that same thing. But some firms, architectural firms in this period were beginning to hire civil engineers to assist them in designing buildings. And that's kind of seems what Charlton had in mind to do. But rather than remaining a civil engineer, he just made that complete jump and, and was immediately known as a draftsman in those firms you know, the, the young architect of the city, as he's referred to at one point by the Detroit Free Press. So he just made that shift for, for uh, I think he just had a, a deeper interest in architecture. And he, he realized that and, and moved on from there. 
You know, the firms he was working for were very prominent. One of them, Gordon Lloyd, was uh, considered the dean of Michigan architects, uh, again, also uh, uh, English-born and, and raised and trained. And uh, he designed buildings throughout Michigan, uh, throughout Ohio as well. What specific projects Charlton was assigned to is unknown. He was probably just drafting the plans of, of whatever was coming through the office during the period he worked for. And that would remain the, the same with the three other architects he worked with in, in, in Detroit as well. So, so he studied with, with these architects there. And, and interestingly, showing, I, I think he, he was ambitious. At one point, he became the architect on retainer for the Detroit School Board for, for just a one-year period. He left the firm he was working for, and then he was simply, he was an architect now, and he would be working for the, the, the Board of Education in Detroit, managing their buildings, designing additions to them, uh, designing repairs that they would need. And during that year, he, he designed his first building ever as an architect, the, the Irving School in Detroit. So uh, again, this shows, I think, how ambitious he was. This opportunity came. It only lasted a year. During this period, these positions like that, a lot of patronage, and uh, probably a new school board came in, he was out, and uh, and then he returned working for two of the, the firms I mentioned already. Then eventually, with the Scott firm, was sent uh, north to Marquette to supervise one of their buildings up there. That's really interesting that you point out that his first building was a school, because one of the things that the book shows pretty explicitly is he didn't necessarily have an area of specialization, but he did a fair amount of designing schools and he did and a of lot of schools. projects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was, and that was a, a recent find in my, my research uh, that had never been noted anywhere before. And it just all of a sudden, given of course, the, the changes that have come in the digitalization of newspapers in recent years, that that article made its appearance, uh, giving him credit for the, for the Irving school and, and, and praising his design and the, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. And, 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 and as you pointed out, it was, it was really interesting that his first building he ever designed was, was a school. Let's move up to the UP now, because as you say, the Scott firm sends him up to Marquette to begin some work on some projects. What does the Upper Peninsula of Michigan look like from an architectural standpoint at the turn of the 20th century? Well, it was it was growing. It was the the, the biggest period of, of growth that the Upper Peninsula would ever see, unless there's something coming in the future that we're not aware of. But uh, mining had begun, both copper and and iron mining had begun in the the decades leading up to the Civil War. Communities were growing. Um, it took uh, a few years for the mining processes to overcome some of the transportation difficulties and so on. So the, the Sioux Canal needed to be built and railroads and so on. But by the time Charlton was there, the cities in the Copper District and the Iron Ranges were established communities, still fairly small, growing, but, but I guess growing is the key, that, that a lot of building was going on. They needed architects. They needed builders. Charlton took advantage of that. The Scots sent him up to specifically supervise the construction of the, the Marquette Branch Prison, the, the state prison that still exists in, in Marquette. A very prominent structure. The, the Scots did a, a number of uh, state of Michigan building projects. They landed that one, and, and Charlton came up as the, the supervising architect and, and opened up a branch firm for the, the company there. So, j- just the example of that prison, uh, you know, that the, the UP is requiring institutions, uh, pr- prisons, and eventually, you know, a, a mental hospital and um, a mining college, and et cetera. These are growing. Uh, public schools are needed. Grammar schools are needed. 
churches are being built. Um, in, in the decades before uh, Charlton arrived in the 60s, 70s, um, up through, through the, the 80s, a lot of types of those types of buildings were being built and they were being built in increasing numbers uh, by the time he arrived in, in the late 1880s. So the UP, still a very rural uh, place, still uh, very much of it a frontier look to it in, in some places, but cities with paved tree-lined streets and, and fine homes and uh, uh, street railway, railways and, and so on, uh, you would have found that there too. You needed uh, architects to design uh, the more complex uh, structures that were being built. You say that in the sort of 50s through the 70s, the 1850s through the 1870s, there's a sort of expansion of civic building and churches and jails and those kinds of things. Was there a, any sense of unified architectural style or city planning involved in those mm. kind of erections before Charlton came, or was it more haphazard? No, it was like typical of everywhere in America at that time. It was pretty haphazard. And I mean, I, you could say that I think of Chicago, Milwaukee, and New York, even in, in that, that time, not a lot of city planning. And architecturally, uh, it was driven by your tastes and, and uh, uh, the, the latest styles. And uh, Charles was part of that whole you know, mess of Victorian architecture. Um, and not, not to be critical, I, you know, our, our, our architecture today can be just as messy in its, in its own way. Um, but no, 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 not any, any dominant style. And, and what you would find in the UP would be reflections of the popular styles that you would have found elsewhere. There was nothing unique necessarily about the, the styles. As noted in my book and as uh, noted by Catherine Bishop Eckert, a prominent architectural historian of Michigan, who did uh, her, her work in sandstone architecture of the Upper Peninsula, it's one defining feature that you find in the UP that um, uh, the, the sandstone found along Lake Superior was found to be an ideal building material. And it began to be quarried in this period by, by the 1870s and, uh, and, and used prominently throughout the region. Charlton designed a lot of buildings using uh, sandstone and that's really character defining. So it's not really a style, but it's that material that you see there again and again through going through the uh, the little downtown areas and main streets of UP cities. You, you see that stone again and again, which was imported elsewhere throughout the state and nation, too. It was uh, considered a prime uh, sandstone. And it, it really worked well with uh, a, a number of the architectural styles that were popular in that period, too. The, the Richardsonian Romanesque. It's uh, bright orange color and, and, and purple color and some of the of its varieties was just very much in keeping with the taste of the day. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Stephen C. Brisson, author of Architectural Missionary, D. Fred Charlton in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, 1887 through 1918. You've mentioned a few times the kind of architectural styles of the day. And I get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that Charlton was more sort of adapting those styles to local use than he was sort of avant-garde, you know, driving the development of architectural style. Could you say a little bit about like what characterized those styles, what kinds of tropes that he was drawn to or, or how the local materials may have uh, fit well with certain aspects of those styles and maybe not others? Yeah, to begin with, as you noted, you know, he, he was not an innovator, you know, by any means. 
he was, wasn't a plagiarizer either. He wasn't overly conservative in his designs. He just really could adapt the styles of the day, the, the national trends, and was a, was a master at working in it. You know, his, his, his best work is, is beautifully done. And uh, I think, as noted in the introduction, you know, he really provided the Upper Peninsula with modern structures worthy of any place in the nation. The innovators, the architects who go out and, and break new ground are the, the, the few and far between. And um, the, the majority of architects usually up until this day, you know, follow the, the, the trends. And that's what Charlton did. And, and he was practicing you know, near the end of the high Victorian period, and that had been going on since the mid-1800s to about 1890, and the silhouette of a building was its most conspicuous element in that, that era. Roofs were steep and broken up. There were towers and turrets and pinnacles, a, a bold use of asymmetry, and uh, the, that high Victorian period was characterized by a variety of picturesque styles. Um, that he worked in. Queen Anne, Richardsonian Romanesques, uh, survival of earlier Italianate and Second Empire. Picturesque eclecticism is sometimes a term that's applied to that high Victorian period. Again, eye movement mattered, color mattered, verticality, and Charlton was just very deft in, in handling those styles. So those buildings are uh, identifiable not only in what specific ornament was used, basically, but how it was used. And then in the 1890s, there was a, a shift, and we entered the final phase of Victorian-era architecture, late Victorian, and that lasted to the end of Charlton's career into the first two decades of the, the 20th century. It was kind of a reaction against you know, that picturesque eclecticism of the high Victorian period, and the buildings became more dignified, uh, the ornamentation more restrained. The jagged outlines, the steeply pitched roofs, you don't see that as much anymore. And uh, because of that, you know, that tendency also, or part of it is uh, uh, moving into more classical revival styles by the end of the 1890s into the, the first two decades of the 20th century. So academic Roman revival and, and Georgian revival forms, a lot of colonial revival. Charlton did a lot of that as well. So those were the trends he was following. What, what he did really matches those general patterns of the, the high and late Victorian period to a great degree. And some of the way he handled it, it could be said, well, maybe it's regional differences and he's working in a relatively rural and isolated region. But you know, I think what he did with these styles, how he adapted them, really comes from his own artistic sense. He was dexterous in interpreting the emerging styles and, and trends throughout his career. Always a little restrained, even in uh, that early picturesque work. It, it was the texture of the material that, that I see really mattered in, to, to, to him more. But whether it be wood or stone, and that texture of the building often provided the, the vibrancy of the design rather than you know, some fussy, fussy decoration. And so that, that sandstone mentioned earlier, that was just perfect for, for that sort of effect, all that, that, that vibrant color. One, one of his, his greatest buildings is the, uh, the Marquette County Courthouse in Marquette. And he uses two colors of sandstone in it, local Marquette stone, Portage entry redstone, granite columns from Vermont. The, the top decoration 
in uh, copper and 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 little white marble insets. And again, it, it it's not overly decorative. There isn't a lot of classical detail. It's a classical building, but he doesn't pull a lot of the the usual classical ornamentation that he could into it. It's really that texture of the stone, the way it's carved into the coins of the building, little pilasters between the windows in a cream color. It's just just this polychrome, you know, beautiful structure that I, I think he just he reveled in that, the texture and and and, and the color. And this was a time that Courthouse was completed when commonly a building in that style of that type would have been built in, you know, would have been white, you know, it would have been a limestone from Indiana or, or, or sandstone from Indiana or, you know, marble and, 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 and very white and, and that, that we're so used to in so many classical buildings. But here Charlton just rejected that in 1904 and made that courthouse this kind of polychrome textural wonder. So you've painted a, a beautifully vivid picture of that courthouse. I, I want all of our listeners to be able to go to Marquette to have a look at it and, and be able to see it in all of its glory. It is interesting the the sort of regional difference, you know, between you know the degree to which the materials allow for that kind of expression and and different kinds of things. There's another MSU Press book on Cleveland architecture that sort of mm-hmm. emphasizes the city plan and that sort of white, you know, neoclassical style that was sort of prevalent at this period. I I feel like we have mentioned a few times, and I don't know that we can mention enough, the sheer scope, the number of buildings that Charlton worked on is in the hundreds, you know, as you say, up in the 400s. Would you say that there is anything that unifies his style or does he approach each of these projects, you know, as a, as a unique opportunity to explore a new theme, to work with a new sort of architectural trend or to employ a material in some new and different way? Uh, No, I really don't see anything unifying his, all his works together because he, he did so many different types of buildings from small dwelling houses to great mansions, from courthouses to, to little city buildings, to industrial structures. You know, there were just so, so many. And he worked in so many of those styles, again, that he, had, he adapted. But uh, again, he, he, had, he, he took on the styles that were popular uh, in, in this period. Often it can be shocking to, to see you know, a design he will do sometimes in a given year, two different houses, even two very similar in, in square footage. And uh, they'll be, they, they look like they, they came from a, out of a, a whole different architectural office. And they could have, in fact, been lying on a drafting table together. And you would, if you'd have to go and say, play a little game and pick which architect designed which buildings and given, you know, a dozen different structures, it would look like, you'd never put some of these buildings together as coming out of, out of the same firm. And again, not untypical of the period for, for firms to do this, um, to, to meet a, a client's taste and so on. The vast variety can be very shocking. And I should note, his design work wasn't limited to the Upper Peninsula. One of the most unusual parts of the history of his firm that from 1896 until it closed in 1918. He ran a branch office in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which at the time was the same size as Detroit. These were two, two big Midwestern cities. And here Charlton, with, up in tiny little Marquette, opened a branch in Milwaukee. 
And I think it just showed again his ambition and that he could, he and his partners could could take on additional work. And and there they were uh, for decades working out of you know Wisconsin's largest city. And and they designed a, a number of of uh, uh, prominent buildings there, some Carnegie libraries, a city hall. Um, in the Milwaukee area, a number of a very uh, attractive upper middle class homes and, and, and so on. So again, his ambition, I think that what, what, what that shows. Well, and also the sort of boom of development that was happening in this country at that period exactly. of time, right. the need for that kind of work, because so much was being built and so many people were moving you know, to the Midwest and across the country more broadly. I mean, it's just a sort of incredible period of of growth and development that, you know, all of these civil engineers and architects and others are able to take advantage of and participate in. Mm-hmm. I, You know, on that note, I, I'm curious about, a, I keep coming back to this question of like planning and how much power does an architect have to shape sort of civic space and, and civil spaces and I wanted to ask you about a number of um, like whole city blocks that Charlton designed. Could you say a little bit about what those contracts looked like and and what that opportunity was to to design a kind of business block for a town? He um, well, uh, b- b- blocks actually refers to a, a single business building. They were often called a block. You know the the Campbell and Wright block or the the Longyear block, uh, it, it, but it was not a full city block. It was simply a standalone you know, commercial structure, two to three or more stories sto- stories high. So he actually he had very little control of the of the streetscape because he would design you know one individual building next to other structures built by other non architects or architects and uh, or, you know competitors and. Even in cases where he uh, would design uh, business blocks, multiple ones in one town, they often would be shockingly different. <laughs> there would be no uniformity in them. And, and in fact, my, my section of my book where I talk about his design of business, commercial business blocks, I focus on Marquette, where he designed many throughout his career. And uh, there are several that are right next door to each other. And again, you would not identify them as coming out of from the same architect because they are so vastly different. Now, a few are separated by decades in his career, uh, but uh, two of the others were built within uh, a very short period of time of each other. So not even he, when, when given the chance to design a building next door to one of his own structures, would he design it to necessarily complement that structure. The only time where he really became involved in city planning, and this in, in, in only in a small way because he was the architect designing buildings for a planned community, was in the, the planned community of Gwyn, the, the model town on the, the Marquette Range built by the, the Cleveland Cliffs Iron Company in the early 20th century. The town design was by Warren H. Manning, a prominent, the most prominent landscape architect in America of this period. And Charlton was brought in to design a number of the specific structures that CCI was building as part of the town. The, the commercial structures, he designed the school there as well, the town hall. Likely, the circumstantial evidence is strong. He also designed probably some, if not all, of the, the workers' cottages, the, the houses of, of the miners and, and, and there too. But again, Manning designed the town Charles sort of brought in as a subcontractor to do the architectural work. 
And then in a similar way, Cleveland Cliffs tried to transform an existing town, the town of Munising, which had been founded decades earlier. They came in, they were doing a lot of operations there, a lot of their wood working operations and paper making operations were in Munising. CCI was you know, vastly diversified at that point. And uh, Manning was brought in to help clean up the town, to give it a better plan. And again, Charlton was brought in as sort of the subcontractor architect and designed a number of buildings as part of that transformation. So, so that, his work with CCI um, is where he kind of touched on to any sort of areas of city planning. Beyond that, it was individual structures, again, which uh, to our eyes can look a little haphazard even when they're uh, right next door to each other. It's so interesting to me because it does seem like it has this weird tension. Like you would feel like, it, is it maybe because it happened over so many years or because those contracts were awarded like piecemeal? You know, you do this one, then you do that one, then you do another one. Like it, it seems like if you knew you were going to design all of the state buildings built in the UP, you would say, okay, here's my vision for that. No, right. He, uh, yeah, with the state of Michigan commissions, they were four you know, totally separate institutions. So all the contracts, even when there would have been multiple parts, would have been let separately. And, that, you know, the, and, and the four institutions were the Newberry State Mental Hospital, um, Northern State Normal School, now, now NMU, um, the Michigan College of Mines, now MTU, and uh, the Marquette Branch Prison. Individually, they were all unified structures except for Michigan Tech which ended up this kind of odd collection, all designed by Charlton. The first one by Scott, but Charlton supervised. All the other buildings added, all in different styles. <laughs> Again, right on this tiny little campus, all right next door to each other, but, but, but all, um, all, all different from each other, which I don't know, maybe that's what the, the engineering crowd up there wanted. That yeah. just sort of a variety to display. There was, I, I doubt if there was any real reason behind it. But at, at Northern, it was really one complex that he designed, built over a, a period of, uh, you know, 15 years or so. And, uh, and he was able to create one unified structure there. And uh, the Market Branch Prison, again, which he, the initial building supervised for the Scots, he added wings to it. Um, and then uh, the, the Newberry State Hospital, he created his, a design in the mid-1890s, which... Uh, lasted almost till the end of his career, but a, a complete unified complex, all completed over uh, to his original design in the end, and uh, which is, is kind of remarkable. You know, he was almost designing a, you know, a new building there every, I forget what I, I calculated, every seven months almost uh, on average uh, for, for Newberry State Hospital. One of the things that I mentioned in the introduction and that the book covers a little bit is the degree to which the architectural profession is changing at this time. Is this just an era where that sort of style of, of contract work and, and different sort of tastes and, and styles are appealing to different projects is giving way to the auteur or have we not reached that sort of, you know, iconic Frank Lloyd Wright moment where you have the, you know, the famous flashy architect. In, yeah, in Charlton's day, there were iconic architects, you know, H.H. H. Richardson, you know, the, the, that style, Richardsonian Romanesque comes from him. McKim Mead and White, the prominent firm out of New York and, and others. These were architects who their design set the tone. You know, the, Richardson was working in 
Romanesque revival styles, you know, he, in, in Charlton and all, uh, all his uh, colleagues follow. The same with McKim, Mead and White and uh, um, academic uh, um, classical revival styles and uh, colonial revival and, and, and so on. They really, the Queen Anne style, they, they brought that to the fore. So there were prominent architects who set the tone out of out of you know, New York and Boston and, and and elsewhere, and other architects such as Charlton again followed that lead. Hmm. Um, so so not really a change there. The change in the profession comes with that change from apprenticeship to degree programs. You know, Charlton's final partner Edwin Coonsley, uh, the firm for its final years was Charlton and Coonsley. Coonsley worked out of the Milwaukee office. Coonsley had a degree in architecture. He was the only one of Charlton's partners that had. Charlton's other partners also had done just what Charlton had. They'd worked as apprentices and so on. So that's the change that was becoming, you know, from a trade to a profession, basically, in these years. And Charlton actively promoted that. And that's why the book is titled Architectural Missionary. He really saw himself as a professional architect. Again, he did not have a degree, but he had, he felt he had all the credentials. He, um, he was a member of the American Institute of Architects. He promoted heavily the licensing of architects in the state, and the governor appointed him to the first board to license architects when the state finally did pass that law, you know, requiring that, that architects be licensed. He really straddled these, these two eras uh, in his profession, uh, the old sort of guild apprentice days, which were dying out, and then the professional degreed architects that, that have followed since. Would you say that that sort of uh, certification process and state oversight and, and uh, you know, the kind of professionalization of architecture has had, like what kind of changes has that had on practice uh, compared to Charlton's day? Well, part of it is, is driven by the complexity of, of, of buildings that, that was happening um, in, in, this, in this period, too, uh, with uh, uh, complex, uh, more complex plumbing systems and then electrical systems and uh, the use of steel, you know, the, the structural changes in how buildings were being designed. This all happened in, in, in Charlton's lifetime. Um, some of his early buildings he was designing, they were not electrified. That's a change that happened. You have to understand that there are no uh, building codes that have to be met. Uh, buildings are becoming again more complex, more dangerous. So, so that's that's part of what drives the building codes and and, and making sure uh, the professionals who are designing buildings are licensed and have the proper credentials and and, and so on. One thing that I want to make sure to ask you about, you know, we've talked about the sheer number of buildings that that Charlton designed in the UP, the enormous, you know, footprint of, of his firm there and, and over into Wisconsin. One thing I want to be sure to ask you about is the legacy of those buildings. How much of that stuff survives now? Well, it's like uh, a lot of architecture, uh, both ancient and and Victorian and modern, it, 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 it's, a, it, it's often a tough road. <laughs> uh, you know, buildings come and go quickly. And uh, Charlton's buildings are no different. You know, of the, I think, over 280 identified works. Again, we believe he designed over 400. I've identified over 280. 97 are confirmed extant. 78 have been destroyed. And the, the fate of 109 structures remain unknown. 
because I've identified the structure but have not been able to actually find out what it actually was. It gets a little complex here. But again, 97 confirmed structures out of over 400. A third of those we were not even know which what they are. I guess you know, the, the fate of especially late 19th century buildings sometimes is not, not great. When you take one example, such schools, you know, schools have suffered you know, even more losses than that whole number of the dozens he designed. There are only about 10 schools left, and only four of those remain as schools. And that can really, you know, that really can make you pause. You know, is what, what does architecture even matter when things, that doesn't matter? Should we even care what things look like when they're, um, we bulldoze them and tear them down so readily? And perhaps maybe we should pause a little more. And here's the preservationist in me, you know, talking. Because four of those schools do survive, and they're fine schools. The bad luck of fire, deferred maintenance, the opinion of a school board, you know, lack of imagination doomed the others. But you know, a little more imagination and maybe more of those schools could have survived. Because again, those four that still exist are, are fine, safe, you know, beautiful structures that are you know, part of the fabric of those communities. So that's often the, 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 the sad legacy of, uh, of an architect's work is you look around and all that survives are images in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a town's history. Um, the, the buildings sometimes didn't even survive a generation or two. And they were, they were deemed a foolish, extravagant of a decadent age. And, and, and they, were, they, they were, we wanted something modern and, and, and down they came. I mean, that's a sort of dour note to end on, but I do wonder if we could perk it up a little by asking, <laughs> have, have, you, have you visited many of the extant buildings and do you have a favorite that you would recommend Michigan listeners uh, try to see the next time they're traveling through the UP? Uh, sure. I mean, it's unfortunate that more of Charlton's works didn't survive into uh, the final phase of, of being loved. And that's often a journey a building takes. It's often hailed as the pride of the community when it's built. And then it becomes reviled as the product of the, the Victorians. But if it can escape out of that, it's often viewed as a, as a monument of a, of a, of a, of a community. Uh, again, it's unfortunate that more of those don't survive. But rather than mourn the losses, perhaps it's uh, better to celebrate what, what does survive. And uh, you know, the Market County Courthouse that we, we mentioned earlier. Um, that survives, you know, gloriously restored. It's the pride of the community. And, um, and there are other uh, structures throughout Marquette, private homes. Sometimes the, the, the homes are, many of his homes are gone, but many survive. And, and their chances of survival are often greater than, than a public building. And uh, the Nagani Firehouse, another a beautiful example of one of his public structures, the Ishpeming City Hall, uh, the City Hall in, in Escanaba, designed by him. Um, currently, recently restored, um, and, and on and on. There are, again, nearly 100 that, that do survive, and, and often they, they are, they are uh, an essential part of the fabric of these towns. As, as we wrap up here, I did want to ask one last question about Charlton's life outside of designing buildings. You mentioned in the book that he developed a rather intense passion for photography, uh, sort of throughout the course of his career um, yes, and then retired from designing buildings. Could you say a little bit about, you know, how, how Charlton's life ended and what he spent his time doing once he was done with the drafting table? Yeah, yes. He, he had always an interest in photography and um, 
I think he, he had a, even had a patent on a darkroom light device that he had developed early on. But once he retired, he opened a, a photo enlarging shop in, in Marquette and uh, providing services to people to be, basically make you know, copies of photographs for you. And uh, he also was an avid photographer and, and produced his own prints and uh, worked with George Shiras, the, the famous uh, wildlife photographer of, uh, of Marquette, nationally known as his, his photographs appeared way back in the day in National Geographic. And uh, Charlton worked with him. The, their, their exact working relationship isn't known, but, but Car- Charlton, uh, in fact, uh, uh, his, his copyright was on some of Shiras's prints. That Carl Charlton was the, the copyright holder, but uh, more work needs to be done to to sort of ferret out that that actual relationship, but between the two. But it was noted in his obituary that he, he loved all things beautiful, and so uh, the, the writer of that o- o- obituary um, noted that that. A, in reference to not only his architectural work, but in his in his photography as well. And he lived out his life in Marquette. He died there in in in, in the 1940s. Uh, and uh, I think as we've shown today, I hope as we've shown today, uh, a thoroughly fascinating and interesting character that played a huge role in um, developing the Upper Peninsula and advancing the the profession of architecture in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. Steve, I think with that, we're about out of time. Before we go, I just want to thank you so much again for taking the time to join us today. I have really enjoyed getting to spend some time with your book, thinking about uh, what life must have been like in the UP in the early 20th century and the role that Charlton played in developing the architecture there and beyond. Well, it's been a pleasure. Stephen's book, Architectural Missionary, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Mill. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the MSU Press team for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books. Books.